0: It's 12 verses, and uh, I'll then explain it as we get into it. Psalm 2, and as always, this is God's word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. There are four voices in this psalm, and basically it's three stanzas of three verses each, and um, so that will help you to understand it as we go through it, but before we get in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us this morning to this amazing messianic psalm to learn more about your son Jesus. We ask you this morning to give us the grace to understand it. It's hard to admit that we're full of hatred and rage, that we want to be free on our own terms, and it's even harder to admit that we need you. So help us to consider what it really means to both have and need Christ the King. Thank you that today we're learning from another king, King David, as he points us forward to the coming king, the true king. And so we pray, speak through your word this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen. On October 22nd in 1996, I know some of you weren't alive then. But a famous church in London, St. Martin's in the Fields Church, there was a congregation of some 200 people, and they were described by the British newspaper, the Daily Telegraph, as admirers. And they had gathered to celebrate the life of the famous 20th century English novelist, Sir Kingsley Amos. Now, the paper described it as a secular service. There was no hymns or prayers, just a lot of laughter. And during the service, the late Sir Kingsley's son, also a novelist, Martin Amos, told the following story, recalling a conversation that his father had with the Russian poet and novelist, Yevgeny Yevtushenko. Now Yevgeny Yevtushenko, perhaps mistakenly thinking that all Englishmen were Christians, asked Amos if it is true that he was an atheist. Well, yes, said Sir Kingsley. And then he added, it's more than that. I hate him. Well, first of all, you have to get past the challenge of hating the God whom you claim doesn't even exist. But that's not a new challenge. You see, Sir Kingsley would have fit in well with today's text, which starts with nations, peoples, and kings plotting in rage against the Lord and his anointed. Being angry at the powers that be is not a new thing. And it's not particularly an American thing. But it is usually a sin thing. And that's because behind the earthly king they criticize sits a heavenly king whom they hate. And that's what's behind our text for today, Psalm 2 which is considered to be the first messianic text. It's some debated because in most Hebrew Bibles, Psalm 1 and 2 are together. Um, But Psalm 2 is clearly a messianic psalm. And so as it's Advent and we approach Christmas and we ask ourselves, what did Jesus Christ come to do and how does Advent reveal him to us? So we're going to be answering those questions over the next month by spending Christmas in the Psalms. And in particular, we'll be looking at five messianic psalms. And they're messianic psalms not only because they tell us uh, about Jesus and not only because um, they have some uh, prophecies about the Messiah. Uh, Some don't mention the Messiah or Jesus. Um, Most of the time, we know they're messianic psalms because uh, Jesus himself picked out a few psalms and said, you know this psalm? This psalm talks about David. Um, It talks about the psalmist and the circumstances of the psalmist. But it's really foreshadowing and talking about me. So most of the time we know it's a messianic psalm because of either Jesus himself or one of the other writers of the New Testament says, this is actually about Jesus. And then you can go back and say, oh, and you sort of read it in a whole new way. So psalms sort of can be read on three levels. So the first level, in a sense, um, they have different reference points. And the first level is, is the time it, is, it was written. And it refers to the historical context of the person who wrote the psalm. But ultimately, it refers to the first advent, coming of Christ. And in some cases, to the second advent, to the return of Christ. So those are sort of the three. The time it was written... When Jesus comes, some 2,000 years ago, the first time, and then when he's going to come, the second time. And so these Psalms not only refer to David, but they refer to a greater David than David, a greater king than their king, a greater warrior, a greater suffering servant, and so on. Now this particular Psalm, Psalm 2, is a coronation Psalm. If you read it carefully, you'll see it has something to do with someone ascending to the throne of Israel. And obviously, it can be read on that level. Someone in David's line, perhaps King David himself. It might have been written when David was crowned, but it's certainly used when other descendants of David were installed as king. In fact, uh, at least in modern history, Psalm 2 is almost always read at the coronation of a king or a queen. Uh, We don't know that because most of us have never seen a coronation of a king or a queen. Uh, We talked about that in the high school Sunday school class that Queen Elizabeth is 93. So even in a constitutional monarchy like Great Britain, the vast majority of citizens of England have never seen a coronation because she's just way older than everybody else. Uh, But that's coming at some point Most likely within the next decade, if Charles survives, we'll see a king. And we have not seen a celebration like that. It will make the royal weddings pale in comparison, the coronation of a king. And it would be shocking if Psalm 2 wasn't read at that coronation. Because historically, it's read at every coronation, but, you know, it's the Brits, so who knows. So that's what's going on here. And in the beginning, it talks about the nations of the earth plotting against the king. Well, it's natural that if you became a king in those days, you had a whole lot of hostile neighbors around who couldn't wait to test out and see just what kind of king you were going to be. And uh, therefore, the context of this psalm is that God is installing the king in Israel on Zion. Zion is the hill in Jerusalem On which the original city stood and where the ancient, the old city of Jerusalem still stands. And so Zion is another way of talking about Jerusalem. So here in Jerusalem, the king's been installed, but all the hostile neighboring kings are conspiring against him. And so the psalmist is saying, be warned, God is with him. God is with this king. God is going to take care of him. So at one level, that's how we need to read the psalm. Although as you go through, you quickly see that no earthly king can completely justify the fury of the threats in this psalm, and no earthly king can completely justify the glory of the promises in this psalm. The things that are said about this king, the anointed one, are far too great to be confined to any earthly king. As a matter of fact in verse 2 where it says the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. In Hebrew the word anointed one means Messiah. So the kings of the earth conspire against the Lord and against his Messiah. Now the New Testament quotes or alludes to Psalm 2 some 18 times more than any other psalm. And therefore... We can also read this psalm as about talking uh, about that greater David, that greater king. And it tells us that we have a true king, a king above all the kings, a king beneath or behind all the kings. But as we get into it, the Bible's teaching us that the natural heart of every person hates the true king. Just like Sir Kingsley Amos. We see that here in verses 1 through 3. We hate the king. It says why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. Now when you read it you can get the impression the Lord and his anointed have the king's Uh, Of the earth in chains like captives in prison. It's probably not an accurate understanding. The kings of the earth are not upset because they're prisoners and have chains on. The kings of the earth are upset because they have an owner. The bonds and cords make up what we would call a yoke. Now as you may know a yoke is something you put on your ox or on your horse. Most of you don't have an ox. Or have a horse. We don't live in an agrarian society. But you can drive out into horse country and see ox and horse. And uh, if they're pulling a wagon, they probably will have a yoke on. And uh, the idea is that somebody owns them. There's someone who demands they be yoked. There's someone who demands that because they've been created the creator has rights over them that's what these people they want nothing to do with that they say i want to be my own and i think verse three is showing us that's the basic impulse of every human heart the bible is teaching us that deep down our natural self we hate the idea of a king we hate the idea of someone who has rights over us We hate the idea of a king who has a yoke on us, who says, you belong to me. You are not your own. You have to do as I say. And that's why the Bible's teaching we don't just disbelieve God. We hate him. Now that may sound harsh, but it shouldn't surprise us. Think back to the beginning of Jesus' life that we're celebrating at Christmas. Upon hearing of the birth of Jesus, Herod immediately begins to plot against him and wants to kill him. Later on, as we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, uh, this fall, as Jesus begins his ministry, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, they all plot to kill him. Think of the plotting of King Herod and then at the end of his life, Pontius Pilate. They sought to, est- to extinguish the light that Jesus is bringing to the world, is shining in the world. And in the book of Acts, the apostles recall the plotting of Herod and Pilate and they apply Psalm 2 to the events of Christ's life and ministry, Acts 4. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, quoting Psalm 2. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They had recognized that the Gentiles and Jews conspired to throw off the rule of the Lord and his anointed. And of course, in John 7, we read, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So apart from the work of the Holy Spirit... We all hate the king. There's a true king, but we hate him. Now, before I move on, I want to respond to the normal objections people raise. And they're understandable objections. Uh, people hear something like this, and they'll say, well, that's silly. You know, that's just preacher hyperbole. You know, preachers, they overdramatize everything. There is some truth to that. Just a little. Sure, there's lots of people who are indifferent to God, there's lots of people who don't obey God like they should, but the average person isn't hostile to God. The average person doesn't hate God and conspire and plot against him. Oh, really? Let me answer that basic objection. One, people claim that most people believe in God. Michael Kinsley is an example. He's a political journalist and a commentator. He writes in the Washington Post, a variety of magazines mostly in the liberal political uh, magazine called The New Republic. And in one editorial he wrote that he'd been hearing people say America was getting hostile to religion, and he was getting tired of it. So he wrote this editorial and said, that's baloney. It's not exactly what he said, but I'm cleaning it up. He says, I know in places like Washington and Manhattan, there are a lot of people who don't believe in God, but over 95% of all Americans believe in God. In this country, is it easier to get up in public and say, I don't believe in God, or is it easier to get up in public and say, I do? Well, now, of course, it depends on whether you're in Manhattan or Peoria. Uh, But you get the point. He's saying, hey, it's popular to believe in God. Most people believe in God. People aren't hostile towards God. People aren't hostile towards religion. This is a religious country. But like so many commentators today, he ends up being wrong because he doesn't define his terms, or he defines them incorrectly. The Bible doesn't say people are hostile towards the concept of God. People aren't hostile towards the idea of God. People aren't hostile to their own, however they imagine God to be. The Bible says people hate the biblical God. It's the biblical God who thunders from Mount Sinai and says, Be holy, for I am holy. Have no other gods before me. It's the biblical God who who, who thunders and says, I will by no means clear the guilty. It's the biblical God who gives us the Messiah, and so the Messiah shows up, and what does the Messiah say? You cannot be my disciple unless you hate your father and mother. You know what that means? You must love me so much that any feelings you have toward anyone else will look like hatred by comparison. That's how much you have to love me. I have to be supreme in your life. I have to be number one in your life. I have to have total control of who you are and how you live. That's the biblical God who puts a yoke on you and says, I own you, I'm your creator, you belong to me. That's the kind of God the Bible says... That people hate. Surely there's some of you in here that are starting to squirm. You say, oh my gosh. That is such an old-fashioned view. I rest my case. That's the normal way a person reacts to the depiction, the expression, the revelation of God in the Bible. Not just some vague Uh, God in general so if I start talking like that and say do you believe in the biblical God the God who thunders from Mount Sinai be holy as I am holy now what does the average person say those 95% who say I believe in God well you know what they say well I believe in a God of love and that sounds so nice It is the, and, and the Bible says that God is a God of love, First John. Clearly tells us God is a God of love. But much of the Bible also tells us that God is a God of justice. And there's many places that talk about his wrath. Not just in the Old Testament, also in the New Testament, John 3. Actually talks more about his wrath than his love, even though that's not the verse that we know in John 3. And so what it means is people are trying to define God how they want to define God. I'll take the love part, but not the justice part. And ultimately, God is the one who gets to define God. And God in the scripture says, love and justice, both perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We don't get to define God for ourselves, and neither does anyone else. The Bible says we hate the biblical God who is the real and true king. We hate the God who says, verse 8, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. In other words, here's the yoke (coughs) I created you, I own you. That's the God we hate. That's the God we reject. Now we have to move on, but there's a concluding point here. How do you know if you're a Christian? Well, how do you even know if the Holy Spirit's working in your life? Ask yourself this. Do you know that at some level you hate God? Have you seen your hatred? Has there ever been any animosity in your life towards God? Have you ever seen how much you hate that yoke? If you know that you hate God at some level, (coughs) if you know that's part of your heart, it actually demonstrates you're a Christian because only Christians know that. Only Christians can admit that. Only the Holy Spirit can allow you to acknowledge that. If you can't admit that at some level you're an enemy of God, (coughs) it's probably because you really are an enemy of God. (coughs) Excuse me. The only way to become his friend is to first admit you're his enemy. So many times you've heard me say that sometimes before you can get somebody saved, you have to get them lost. They have to first admit there's an issue between me and God. And everyone who comes to Christ has to admit that first. And we've all had to do that at some level if we're in Christ. If we can't admit that, and we're probably not in Christ. The only way to know that God's spirit is working in your life, if you can see that hatred that was in your life, and some remnant of it is still there. But, you know, God has a response for all of that. It doesn't throw him for a loop. He's not dismayed. He's not discouraged. He's not looking down from heaven and saying, Oh, Mark, you know, still got work to do could say that about anybody i just like to pick on mark it says he scoffs at those who hate him and psalm 2 makes it clear verses 4 through 9 that we have a king we have a king it says he who sits in the heavens laughs the lord holds them in derision older versions say the lord scoffs at them Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. We've changed voices from verse 6 to 7. We've gone from the father to the son. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. God says, here are all these kings around you, but there is a king above all these kings. There is a king behind all these kings. There is my king, the true king, that I have installed. Now one of the things I find so interesting about literature and basically old stories, is how many ancient legends in virtually all cultures have a king story. You know, there was a great king who ruled with wisdom and power and justice and compassion, and when the king was there, the land experienced this golden age, and everyone blossomed. The land blossomed, the arts blossomed, relationships blossomed, civilization blossomed, but something has taken the king away, and everything's fallen apart. Everything's fallen in decay, but we're looking for that day where the king will come back. How many of our legends are like that? It's astonishing. You have the Robin Hood legend. Here's Robin Hood fighting because the good king is gone and darkness has descended on the land. And he's just fighting to keep the flame alive until the good king can come back. That's <coughs> Robin Hood. How about King Arthur? When Arthur was ruling, there was Camelot, but now he's gone. And on his tombstone, it says, here lies Arthur, the once and future king. Not just the once, but also the future king. That's the key to all the legends. There was a great king, and when he was here, everything was great, but now he's gone. When's he coming back? Even one of the most successful modern legends, Lord of the Rings by Tolkien, as any of you who have read them know, the basic theme is there's a true king, but he's hidden in the north. But one day he's going to show up, and when he does, everything will blossom, and on and on it goes. Why, why all these returning king legends when the actual record of real human kings is pretty abysmal? I mean, the actual record of human kings is a record of tyranny and tragedy and slavery. And it's so bad that nearly every monarchy has been toppled and in its place has been placed some form of democracy. We have democracy because human beings are sinful so that none of us are fit to rule, Uh, but we need a king. We were built for a king. And the reason for the old myths and the reason for the new myths, and by the way, all the superhero stories are just new myths about kings. They follow the same pattern. The reason we adore kings is because there's a memory trace in all mankind. Joseph Campbell, who's not a Christian, has written a book on how myths go through cultures and centuries. And you can trace them going back thousands of years. And we write new stories with new characters. But there's the same plot line that runs through all of them. And he says we adore kings because there is a memory trace in all mankind a memory trace in you and me of a great king an ancient king one who ruled with wisdom and power and compassion and justice and glory so that his wisdom and power and compassion were like the sun shining in full strength and we were built to submit to that king we were built to give ourselves to that king we were built to stand before and adore and serve and know that king that's what the bible's saying there's a king above all kings There's a king behind all kings. There's a king beneath all these legends. Even the greatest kings are just dim reflections of that memory trace in us of a great king. And if you reject the true king, you'll find a king because you have to. Even if you intellectually reject the idea that there's a true king... You can't reject it ontologically, which means you can't reject it inside in your very being. It's part of who you are. You can't reject it psychologically. You will find someone to admire. You'll find saviors. You'll find kings. There's somebody somewhere. You're going to put them on a throne. The Bible says you'll find a king. You'll find a white knight. You'll find a savior. You have to, it's in your blood. King Arthur, Robin Hood, good King Richard, a real Harry Truman-type Democrat in the White House, someone who's gonna save you. You know, we'll have another presidential election and somebody somewhere thinks no matter what's gonna happen, my candidate is the one who's gonna save us and make everything right. That hasn't happened yet, at least not in my lifetime for either party But people are going to act that way. If you elect my candidate, all will be well. And you can hear it here first. All will not be well, regardless of who gets elected. Okay, that, but we'll act that way. People will talk that way because they're trying to get your vote and they're good at marketing and sales and all that stuff. But God says, verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion my holy hill. And then the next verse is really interesting because it's actually verse 7 is the verse from the Psalms that's the most quoted in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, or again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Hebrews 5. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And to what earthly king, or even an angel, according to Hebrews, could God say, I will make the ends of the earth your possession? Is this just royal hyperbole? Is this just the flattery you heap on an earthly king at his coronation? Or is it possible that God literally said this to somebody? Is it possible that there's a real king above all the earthly kings, a real king behind all the earthly kings? In the New Testament, the message of Christianity is yes, there is. There is one and only one Messiah, the Christ, the Lord and his anointed one, and that king is coming. Finally, the last three verses tell us look, if we have the king, but we hate the king, then the only recourse we have is to be persuaded that we need the king. And that's the last blank there. Verses 10 through 12, we need the king. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's three commands in those verses. Serve the king, kiss the king, rejoice in the king. There's no in between. You can either serve and rejoice and kiss the king and you'll find refuge in him and be blessed or you won't serve, you won't rejoice, you won't kiss the king and you won't find refuge and you won't be blessed. And what it's saying is there's no refuge from the king. There's only refuge in the king. There's no in between. There's no refuge from the king. There's only refuge in the king. You need the king. You have to be persuaded of that. Let me put it to you this way. The principle of these verses in Psalm 2 is that the yoke eventually becomes a refuge service becomes freedom if you take the yoke off because you think it's bondage you'll find that you'll perish you need that yoke in fact the yoke is the only way to get to freedom let me explain say uh, here there's a young lady and she wants to be a great musician and her parents see this great artistic gift in her and they want that artistic gift realized so what do they do they get out a yoke. It just looks like a piano. And she's yoked to her piano for hours every day. And some days she wants to and some days she doesn't. And some days she likes to practice and some days she doesn't like to practice. But every day she's yoked to the piano. She's yoked to her practice. And as time goes by, that yoke becomes a refuge. As time goes by, her artistic skills start to blossom. As time goes by, she's able to express herself musically in a way that she never could have if she hadn't gone through the routine and, let's say it, the drudgery of practice. The yoke becomes a refuge. The yoke becomes a blessing. See how the analogy works? The Bible says in every person there's giftedness. But that giftedness only comes out, only reaches its potential if you come in under the yoke of the king. To serve and kiss and rejoice in the king means eventually you'll find refuge and blessing. But it also means you're no longer in charge. You're yoked. That's the way it is. That's what it means to come in under a king. And the Bible says you need a king. You can't understand yourself psychologically. You can't understand yourself culturally. You can't understand your own heart unless you see you're driven by this need for a king. If you refuse to serve the king, if you refuse to kiss the king, if you refuse to rejoice in the king, verse 12, you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Therefore, unless you submit yourself to what you're built for, you will perish in the way. You see that? until you submit to the king, until you give yourself to him utterly and completely, your heart, the Bible says, and I don't know if this is a good analogy or not, uh, I should ask asked some of the car guys here, um, but your heart is kind of like an eight-cylinder engine running on one cylinder. How's that work, Matt? Not so well. I mean, it spits and coughs and it lurches and halts. it's just terrible, it doesn't work very well. Your deepest needs or that you need to find that you count, that you're accomplishing something, and that you need to feel that you're loved, that you're valuable to someone. And when you serve the king and you kiss the king and rejoice in the king, then those needs are satisfied. Because when you serve him, he serves you. When you kiss him, he kisses you. When you rejoice in him, he rejoices in you. That's the way it is in a relationship. And this story finds true meaning and ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus, the king the Messiah. And as we read this Advent, these five messianic psalms, Jesus' sorrows, victories, and saving reign are going to ring clear. If we're united to him, we'll share in those experiences. The psalms will become our hymn book, and the psalms will become our prayer book, because they were first his hymn book, and they were first his prayer book. The central verse in this whole psalm comes back to us in verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And the question remains, when did that happen? When does this happen? When did God the Father set Christ the king on Zion, God's holy hill? The Apostle Paul actually explains it in the book of Acts. In Acts 13, he says, But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul identifies the resurrection as the royal enthronement. The ascension is the coronation. They go together, resurrection and ascension. And he is now sitting at the right hand of God. We must recognize, now Paul is writing in Acts 13 in the context of a church beginning to undergo persecution and seeking shelter in the reign of the Messiah. The nations hatch their plots and their schemes and yet the Lord sits in heaven and laughs. The wicked put Jesus to death. But God defiantly raises him from the dead and seats him at his right hand, which in effect reverses the unjust verdict and execution of his son at the hands of wicked men. And at the right hand of the father, Jesus then receives his inheritance, which the psalmist describes in Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Even though Christ has been installed on Mount Zion, the nations still conspire and plot against him. And for their rebellion, the Messiah will come with a rod of iron and a sword and bring destruction on him. We have to look at the second coming, when He comes again. Notice how the Apostle John uh, describes this return of Christ in Revelation 19. From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. If we realize that Christ's word. The gospel is a double-edged sword Then it is through the proclamation of the gospel that Christ brings the nations under judgment even at this moment. David's words are not simply those of an ancient prophecy uh, that never came to pass or that's true as yet to be fulfilled. These are ancient words written long ago that were fulfilled in the first advent of Christ, chiefly in Jesus' resurrection and ascension. The nations plotted in vain, to throw off the authority of the Lord and his anointed. But God sat in heavens and laughed and raised his son from the dead and made him king of kings and lord of lords. And try as they might, the nations cannot and will not overthrow the reign of the Lord and his anointed. Not only will they not overthrow the reign of the Messiah, in spite of the world's best efforts, Christ promises that he will preserve all those who seek refuge in the Messiah. And to those, they will be blessed. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your son. Open our eyes that we might see our hate and then see our savior. Thank you that you have given us a king who loves us. I pray that everybody here might find that as they come and kiss the king and they serve out of love for him, that they'll find their lives are far more satisfying with Christ than without him. Father, forgive us for wanting to pull the yoke off. Show us that the yoke becomes a refuge and that serving you leads to perfect freedom. And so work in each of us this Advent as we learn these messianic psalms, seeing what they teach us about Christ the king. Thank you for giving us a picture of what it means to take refuge in Christ. And so draw us ever closer to your Son, our Savior, and remind us once again that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Hear the words of institution as they come to us the writing of the inspired Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. He writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Uh, it's our practice to have one of our ruling elders come and uh, talk to you at this time about coming to the Lord's table. <laughs>
1: As uh, many of you may know, uh, over the past few weeks and months Frank Wong has been meeting with a group of middle school students uh, in preparation uh, for uh, perhaps joining the church this week. This is our communicants class and uh, the students will be meeting with us for the session. Uh, and they will be given a set of questions that they will need to address and answer. And if they answer affirmatively, they will be uh, joined to the church, and they will get to take the Lord's Supper for the first time, uh, probably on Christmas Eve. I thought it might do us well to all revisit those questions because these are essentially the eligibility requirements for taking the Lord's Supper. The first one, and I'm not going to read all of them, but I'll read a few of them. Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? In essence, do we hate the king? Is that been our lot? Do we acknowledge that we have hated the King? The second question is Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon Him alone for the salvation as He is offered in the gospel? Do you take refuge in the King? Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? Do we kiss the King? You don't have to be a member of this church to participate in this table, but we do ask that you be a member of a church somewhere Or that you're seeking to be a member, acknowledging yourself to be a a sinner, um, and, and then not only that but to repent. Scripture plainly tells us that we're all sinners. Repentant sinners are welcome to this table.
0: Well, you've heard one of your elders uh, call you to confess your sins, to call you to repentance. So let's do that. Let's take a moment to silently confess our sins to God and repentance and turn to Christ, and then we will publicly pray this prayer of confession that's in your bulletin and it'll be on the screen. But take a, a moment to confess your sins to God. Prayer of public confession. Almighty God, we believe that you are coming again in power to judge the earth. But we confess that we have not lived as those who daily expect your kingdom. We have spoken harsh words, thought impure thoughts, and lived casual lives that are unbecoming to the gospel. We have ignored your promised judgment by not loving you with our whole hearts or our neighbors as ourselves. Have mercy on us and forgive us for all our offenses. In your tender kindness, embrace us with your fatherly love and fill our hearts with the joyful expectation of seeing you soon, face to face, through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. There is so much Advent in that prayer. I love that prayer. Here the assurance of pardon, also coming to us from the book of Hebrews. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy. And find grace to help in time of need. Amen. And as we have uh, confessed our sin, let us also profess our faith now. And we'll do that uh, today with the words of Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. Amen. If you have not taken communion uh, with us before, um, it is uh, a fairly simple process, but let me explain it. Uh, we will have a number of elders and deacons uh, here at the front uh, and in the middle. And we'll come down that aisle and the back half will come down the back part and the front half will come down here and you'll receive the elements at the side and then as you come across there'll be a number of elders and deacons and just stop and pray with them. You can do that individually as a couple of family with friends. Any way is fine and uh, we'd love to pray with you and uh, then just go back to your seat on this side. If they're not real clear what to do just Follow somebody who looks like they know what they're doing, and uh, that would be great. So I would ask all of the elders and deacons to come down uh, at this time, and uh, as they come down, um, let me pray, and uh, we'll set aside uh, these elements. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that it is our privilege to come to your table to take communion, to receive This bread and this cup, Lord, we ask that you would set aside these common elements and that you would make them holy elements, that they would be set aside as a means of grace uh, to each of us, that we would come to you and uh, that we would commune with you through these elements, that we would know uh, through the bread and through the cup that we have spent time uh, with you this morning. We ask that you would do that for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus uh, took the bread, and after having given thanks for it, as I have done in his name, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body, broken, For you, take and eat all of you in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And after giving thanks for it, he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink it, all of you, in remembrance of me. Amen. You may come forward. Let's stand for the benediction. With all the talk of being yoked and not liking to be yoked, I thought this verse would be appropriate from Matthew chapter 11. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son, and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God bless you. Have a happy advent.